0: midtown detroit studios of wdet this is detroit today
1: america is facing a lot of changes at a rapid pace, including changing demographics but what is best for us as a country to grapple with these changes is it looking backwards longing for a past that may have never existed or looking forward to imagining how we can thrive together This hour, we'll speak with author Mohsin Hamid about his recent novel, The Last White Man, thoughtfully addressing themes of loss, race, and privilege in a changing world. That's next, but first the news from NPR. to Detroit Today. I'm Nick Austin filling in for Steven Henderson. I probably don't need to tell you that America is going through a lot of changes. Our economy is being reimagined by Congress and President Biden. Our communications technology is speeding up at a rapid pace. And our climate, it's getting warmer. But in addition to these novelties, one of the most obvious changes is the makeup of who lives in America and in Western nations more broadly. Today, the United States includes many more people from the Caribbean, Africa, Latin American countries and Asian countries as well, more than it has in previous generations. And that means the average American today is less likely to be someone who identifies as white we hear a lot of discourse about this concern and perhaps now somewhat starkly as a backlash to a culture grappling with how to give voice to more non-white people. We hear it from groups like militia groups in Michigan and across America. They don't appear to appreciate this change, pushing back against changing skin tones and they're using violence or threatening to use it to change things. In fact, Groups have attempted to disrupt our democracy and continue to do so. They've attempted to kidnap the governor of Michigan, and they've continued to attempt to overrun state and federal capital democratic proceedings. They want to keep power, and some will tell you directly that America and Americans should look a certain way. But is there a different way? Can we have a more equal America without a class of people asserting disproportionate control and power? Can we address concepts of privilege and whiteness in a compassionate manner to achieve understanding? Can we have a society where the privileged openly share with those who don't look like them? Mohsen Hamid is a novelist who has written a new book about change about what it means to adapt to the changes happening in society and the loss that accompanies it. He takes a look at concepts like whiteness, but it's not antagonistic to white people. In fact, Mohsen's new book, The Last White Man, is a thoughtful look at a changing world filled with compassion and care. And that's why we're very happy to bring him in to the conversation today. Mohsen Hamid is here to talk to us about his new book. Mohsen, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you. I just want to start here because I think this term can be tough for people to grasp with, but it's something that comes up a lot when folks talk about your book. What is whiteness to you?
2: So um, in, in my own life, uh, whiteness is something that I guess I've encountered um, from a slight distance. I came to America when I was three years old from Pakistan stayed till I was nine, went back to Pakistan, came till I was, when I was 18, stayed till I was 30, moved to Britain. Um, and as a brown-skinned man with a Muslim-sounding name, I was never white, but I also um, never really fit into the American racial binary of, of sort of black and white growing up. And being in these big cosmopolitan cities like New York and the Bay Area of San Francisco, uh, going to these elite universities that I attended and having sort of a well-paying job, um, for the most part, I would have said discrimination was something that I experienced and encountered but didn't rate as that important to my individual life. And it was really after 9-11 when I um, suddenly encountered people uh, you know, searching me at the airport or putting me in, in for additional questioning at immigration or changing their seats on the subway that I really discovered, in a sense, um, this idea of being, of being typecast for how I looked and where I came from. And, And when that happened, I felt like I'd lost something. And what I felt I'd lost was, in a way, a kind of partial whiteness, the ability just to be a human being with no additional identity attached onto you, no additional sense of threat or inferiority. And so for me, in a way, in an American context, I think whiteness very much has to do with being a basic human um, without that additional stuff of, of threat and inferiority imposed on top of you.
1: It's very fascinating to hear you talk about that because so often for many of us, if there even is going to be a change in our life and how maybe the world perceives us, it's going to happen at a gradual pace. But you talk about a specific moment in time where there's a stark change and then you can actually notice uh, differences in a much more stark way, perhaps, because it doesn't happen so gradually. Uh, Can you explain to listeners uh, from your understanding, I know you touched on it a little bit there, um, some of the things you really noticed from that change that maybe someone who's been on one side or the other wouldn't notice about uh, uh, how, uh, how one side could view the other in our binary, as you mentioned, in America.
2: Well, I think, um, you know, one of the things that, that people um, in the brown part of the spectrum, um, who, who weren't clearly black or white, but were something else, um, many of us um, had other ways, I guess, of being identified, you know, kind of social class. How much money did you make? How did you speak? How did you dress? Where did you live? Um, and we were, for many of us, you know, partially outside of that of that system. Um and so you could say, oh, well, you know, I'm not contributing to racism in America. Um, I'm not, you know participating in sort of the racist American, kind of paradigm, I'm just my own person, but in a way you're also benefiting from it. And I guess what I realized was, um, when suddenly I became the suspect character and all these things started to happen, uh, my initial impulse was, I wanted to go back to the way that go, things to go back to the way they were before. I wanted things to be, uh, how they were before 9-11. Um, but as the months and years went by, I started to ask myself, you know, what exactly do I want to go back to? I'm now seeing firsthand this kind of sense of discrimination and fear um, in other people, Um, do I really want to be somebody who just is exempt from that? Or do I want to investigate the ways in which I've been complicit in it, the ways in which I have helped actually create and participated in the racial system in America? And that became a much more, I think, interesting and, and troubling conversation for me to have.
1: We're speaking again with Mosin Hamid, whose new book is The Last White Man, which is a very fascinating look, unpacking a lot of concepts dealing with race and loss, as you just mentioned. And one of the things I was hoping to do while we had you here is perhaps get you to open the book and read a portion of it for us. In fact, I was hoping to get you to page 56, uh, starting at the uh, paragraph there. And if you could just read that to the end, if possible, for us, because I think it's a really fascinating look at some of the things happening in
2: your book. Starting from, it was a day off? That's correct. It was a day off, and they had casually aligned their schedules to have this day off coincide, eager to meet in sunlight, elsewhere than at Anders' place, without the pressures and complications of a bed nearby. It was not a day off at school, but some schoolboys were standing on the opposite bank, one of them smoking, Another skipping stones. And the boys did not stare at Anders and Una as they approached, but they did look. And the boys were all a similar color, more or less. And Anders was dark and Una was light. And Anders and Una became intensely aware of their difference in that instant. And the boy who was skipping did not pause his skipping. And the sharp, flat stones he threw were not necessarily round. And some went farther than others. And one could have crossed over to Anders and Una and thudded into the path as they walked, but no stone hit them or came particularly close. And Una did not know if this was by chance or design. And Anders gazed straight ahead, not locking eyes with the boys, not challenging the throwing, which did not stop as it might have given the risk of error or misunderstanding.
1: I think what's really fascinating and going on here is that you have the main character, Anders, who was initially white and then wakes up one day at the beginning of the book. And now he has brown skin, along with Una, who is his uh, dating partner at the time, uh, who is white. And as they walk, they see themselves or understand, they're more acutely aware of uh, how they appear to these boys and are thinking about it um, in a way that... Didn't have to happen before. It would just be boys who are skipping rocks. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about, uh, in that passage, what you're trying to do in terms of discussing uh, when you're brown, you feel race, like your race is always present, even in innocuous moments like this.
2: Yeah, so partly what's happening to Anders and Una, and and Anders' The Novel Begins is is somebody who thinks of, of himself as white, and then he very quickly wakes up uh, on the first day of the novel and discovers that he's dark and he's sort of dealing with this, but Una hasn't yet changed. And so they're walking and these boys are looking at them and they're aware of being looked at. And what's playing out here is a bit of a sense of, it's not clear to them exactly what's happening. And I think in the domain of race, that's often the case. Um, oftentimes we're just not sure, you know, was that interaction racially charged or wasn't it? Did that person not like me? Or did they not like me because of how I look? You know, was that just a brusque encounter or was that pointed racism? I think so much of what happens in the domain of race is something where it's partly happening in our minds and it's not exactly clear to us. And so Andrews and Una have this uncomfortable, potentially even dangerous experience, but they're not sure exactly whether they should be uncomfortable and how dangerous it is.
1: We're speaking again with Mohsen Hamid here on 1019 WDET about his book, The Last White Man. And another thing that we've mentioned here and touched on that uh, goes on throughout the book, uh, which again is a very fascinating read. It's not just about race, obviously. In fact, I would state that loss has a whole lot more to do with it in a character study about how people deal with this uh, changing. Uh, your book is about people who are losing uh, their skin color, but it's not just, and uh, it's not just that. It's about struggling with that change, just like in our culture, uh, we're struggling with change. Uh, how do you see people navigating change in uh, your world versus how you are unpacking it in this book, or in our world, I should say?
2: So one thing that I'm seeing a lot all over the world um, as I travel is just how pervasive this sense of of loss is. And how many groups that have thought of themselves as the dominant group in their country um, are feeling a profound sense of loss. And so of course, there are people, um, as you mentioned in your introduction in America, who consider themselves white and feel a loss of status and, and, uh, and position in society. But something similar is happening with British people. Uh, in Brexit Britain, yeah. um, with Russianness ness in, in Putin's Russia, with Turkishness in Erdogan's Turkey, with you know traditional Islam in Afghanistan or Pakistan, with uh, Hindutva in, in Modi's India. There's, it's happening in too many countries for this to be a coincidence. I think that what we're seeing is around the world a profound sense of loss by all kinds of groups. And it's worth us asking why people are feeling this. And I think partly what we're feeling is as the pace of change accelerates, as technology and our impact on the world around us accelerates things, things are changing more and more rapidly. And more and more people feel sort of unsettled by this. And they're turning to a kind of nostalgic view that things were better in our past, in the recent past or the ancient past when people like us were the dominant people and our way of doing things was a dominant way. And so I think that to deal with and to think about questions like race, it's also very important to grapple with this feeling of loss. And in a sense, to grapple with it in a um, sympathetic sense. In other words, it may not be that one has to be sympathetic to um, a sense of Turkishness or Russianness or whiteness or Muslimness, to be sympathetic to the idea that people feel that they're losing something. And what the novel tries to do is in a sense, tell the story of these four characters who are losing whiteness Um, with a degree of sympathy for how they feel about that loss, even if the novel isn't necessarily sympathetic to the idea of whiteness.
1: And as you mentioned those four main characters, now that we've kind of dove into the overview of it, and again, like I said, this was a very fascinating read, I'd like to present it to you to set up those four central characters and uh, what you were trying to accomplish with this novel.
2: So the novel is basically made up of three love stories. In an unknown town, in an unknown, uh, an unnamed town in an unnamed country, uh, two young people, Anders and Una, who've been dating, um, uh, meet, and they're spending time together, and Anders has turned dark, and the town begins to turn dark. More and more people who thought of themselves as white wake up, discovering that they're now dark. Um, Anders and Una's relationship as they navigate this change, um, the sort of love story between Anders and Una, is one of the central pillars of the novel. The other two pillars are Una's love story with her mother, an intergenerational love, um, and Anders' love with his father, another intergenerational love. Una's mother is a woman who has lost her husband, has recently lost her son, Una's brother, um, and feels like things are being taken away from her, that this isn't a world where good things happen to good people. It's an unfair world. Where her, where her kind of people really are uh, basically under threat, and she feels that you know white people are being erased, and in a strange way, whiteness is being erased in the, in the novel, so she's not entirely wrong, although the people aren't being erased as such. Um, and she's dealing with this, and Ina's trying to help her mother navigate this profound sense of depression and anxiety and paranoia that grips her. Anders's father um, has also lost his wife, uh, Anders's mom, who died some years before. And he's now profoundly ill himself. And uh, he is trying to navigate the end of his own life. And so Andrews and his father's love story is a story of a young man trying to look out for his father as his father reaches the end of his life, but also a father trying to take care of his son and who's deeply worried about the fact that his son has turned dark, who's deeply worried about the obstacles and hostility his son faces and also knows he won't be around to take care of his son. But it's still trying to pass on to a son some sort of value, some sort of dignity, some sort of strength. And so these three love stories really are, are the way in which this novel is, is, is built. And it's, it's a novel about um, a world where people stop appearing to be white and where we can no longer tell by looking at someone what their race is. And once that happens and we can't sort each other in that way, um, new things begin to happen.
1: Why do you believe that the novel is a good way to convey this message to a wide swath of people? Um, One of the things I'm thinking about is by reading it, you know, you'll hear people with reviews. People can interpret things in different ways and it can be open ended. But I would wonder, especially for someone who's so prolific in writing uh, as you are, why do you believe a novel is a great way to uh, convey the messages you're trying to convey as you do in this story?
2: Well, I think novels do something pretty special. So right now we have 3 mastery produced ways of storytelling, three main ones uh, of of telling fictional stories. You know, one is television, one is cinema, and the two are kind of merging uh, as we stream films to our TVs. Um, and the third is is books. And in a TV show or a film, what you're seeing is something that looks like the world. So you would look like you, I would look like myself, and the coffee you know mugs that we're holding would look like coffee mugs, and And the viewer of a a film or a TV show is a viewer. You're seeing something that looks like the world. The reader of a book is not a viewer at all. The reader of a book basically encounters a white page that has black letters and punctuation marks and spaces on it. And the reader creates out of that people and feelings and emotions and images and sounds and smells, bodily sensations. The reader is creating an enormous part of the novel. So novels are different and unique, I think, in the way that readers make them. When you read a novel, it's more like two kids playing make believe together and saying, you know, we're both pirates or, you know, we're both astronauts and you make up this world and you play in it together. And because of that, I think novels are a chance for readers to imagine things for themselves. You know, in conversation with a novelist who's kind of written a series of prompts, the thing that we call a novel. But the way we experience a novel is how we imagine it. And so I think when it comes to race, it's such an uncomfortable domain. It's such a strange and bizarre domain. And when we encounter it publicly, very often we have to put on a kind of performance. We feel like we need to perform our view. And once we've said something, we have to stick with it. And we have to sort of adhere to what we imagine to be um, our position. But when we read a book by ourselves and we imagine, onto these characters, you know, what's going on, and we imagine how they make us feel, and we judge them for ourselves, and then we think, why am I judging in this way? What's happening is we're getting to have an imaginary experience that's entirely private. We're not performing for anybody else, and we can maybe be a little bit more honest with ourselves about how that makes us feel and what that does to us.
1: Yeah, yeah. I do have a question uh, off of that because you're right. It does allow for a lot more of an intimate interaction um, with the story uh, and being part of the uh, book. But is there any concern, especially when you deal with a topic that can be so hot button for so many people that when you provide through a novel so much freedom that the message can be lost or get misinterpreted? Uh, How do you deal with that as the author of a novel?
2: Well, I think it's a risk, you know, um, not everybody has, has liked this novel and some people have strongly disliked this novel and, um, people have interpreted it as, as, you know, hostile to white people or unnecessarily sympathetic to white people. I mean, you know, there've been critiques on, I suppose, on, on, on both sides. Um, I think that, uh, for me, what was interesting was we're living in a world where this problem is becoming more and more pronounced. Um, we are polarizing and we're dividing and we're sorting into increasingly uh, mutually hostile groups. Now, living half my life in Pakistan and watching things like that play out, for example, in Afghanistan, which is just really a few hours drive from, from Lahore, uh, where I spent half my life, um, the danger of going down that route of complete polarization and the violence that can ensue, and the civil wars that can ensue. Those aren't, for me, um, imaginary things. Those are very real things. I think that it's important to find a way to resolve um, societal conflicts without reaching a point of polarization that breaks out into open violence. And so when you say, what is the risk of a novel being um, uh, misinterpreted? That risk is certainly there. But what is the risk of us, you know, not trying to think of other ways to move beyond the polarization of race, to open up spaces for us to enter into a future where um, some of the harms of race and racialized thinking can be undone, but that's open for us to get to, in a sense, together or individually? Um, I think that it's worth that risk. So for me, um, I would rather try to imagine ways into a different kind of future even if that's open to critique then to close off the future and to say we have to have warring sides that that really must fight it out in a battle of power to determine who's going to come up on top yeah
1: yeah we're speaking again with Mohsen Hamid, who is the author of The Last White Man, a novel, and a New York Times, best bestselling author of Exit West. And uh, coming up, as we continue the conversation here on Detroit Today, we'll speak with you, including David and Royal Oak. You hang on. We're going to get to you next as we continue our conversation. If you want to be part of this talk, 313-577-1019. What do you think of America's changing demographics? What do you think of the book? What do you think of uh, the stories we tell ourselves. 313-577-1019. Detroit Today continues in just a moment. one hundred 1019WDET, it's Detroit Today, I'm Nick Austin, filling in for Stephen Henderson, a very fascinating conversation with novelist Mohsen uh, here's the author of The Last White Man, a novel that you can pick up now that is a very, very fascinating reflection on changing demographics, uh, race and loss. It is a truly fascinating read. Good read. And uh, we want to get you involved in the conversation as well. 313-577-1019. Uh, how are you dealing with race in general and how do you think how are you thinking about it today? I mean, do you have someone uh, or one of your friends that's openly come out as a white supremacist or against this how do you interact with them and have you tried to welcome them into more culturally and racially diverse spaces uh we would like to hear from you as to that as well are you someone who's read the book also and has a question for most and uh we can get that in as well but right now i want to go to david and royal oak who's been holding for a moment david thanks for holding go ahead you're on detroit today david are you there Looks like we lost Dave. Oh,
3: middle school. I was well. I'm a European Jew. When I was in middle school, I moved into uh, I moved into a suburb that uh, at that time allowed Jews. That was a budding uh, suburb that allowed no minorities. The the rental agreements uh, allowed no minorities. So the kids I was going to school with. Uh, their parents were, you know, anti-minority. Even though, and even though I was a European Jew, I would be ambushed and uh, my head would be uh, bashed against the the, the main road, uh, and I would be. They would say, "You are not Jewish. You are not Jewish." And I have not read this book, but uh, I feel for anyone who uh you know who who is being who is being treated this way uh, m- many of which who uh you know whose parents and uh, ancestors were here way before the people that are uh committing these atrocities against them uh, uh came here
1: you know um, go ahead yeah David, I'm very happy that you called, and thanks so much for sharing that story. It's always been fascinating, especially for, for someone like me. You know, it, it was very foreign to hear about the idea that a Jewish person was not considered white, was just a foreign concept to me growing up. And then to learn that that distinction could be made where people looked so similar to me growing up, I didn't understand how you could be cleaved like that. Uh, but I present that comment to you, uh, Mosin, for your response based on what David and Roy Loke had to say
2: well i think the really interesting thing is that um is that we imagine race into existence right you know race isn't like you know an automobile or like the sun like this physical object that just exists right when we start getting down to it, it's really hard to figure out what exactly race is sure there are darker and lighter people there's different hair you know types and eye colors and you know features and whatever but those things don't really add up to race you know, race is something else. Radius is a kind of categorization that we invent in our minds. And it's worth keeping in mind that, you know, for many people, when they come to America, it's the first time they encounter race in an American sense. So, I, you know, I have friends from, for example, Ghana, you know, in West Africa. Yeah. And, you know, they didn't look different when they moved to America. But suddenly in American context, they became, you know, black. Whereas in Ghana, they were just, you know, a regular person. Or in Pakistan you might have somebody who has green eyes and light hair and somebody who has dark eyes and dark hair and dark skin in the same classroom and they're both Pakistani and they're not aware of being a different race because the concept doesn't exist in the same way. And so you know we imagine this thing into existence and it's worth keeping in mind as well that we only imagine it into existence recently. So during the Christian reconquest of Spain uh, a few hundred years ago, from from the Muslim uh, kings and queens who ruled Spain at the time and had ruled it for centuries, the real question that mattered was not, you know, are you black or white or you know European or African. The question was, are you a Christian, or are you a Muslim or a Jew? And after the wrong Reconquest was complete, or as it was being completed, um, the question became, well, what about people who are pretending to be Christian but are actually Muslims and Jews and and then it became well what if you're of African descent you know North African descent you're more likely to be Muslim or, or, or Jewish and so this race thing sort of comes into existence now that's only a few hundred years ago the ancient Greeks wouldn't have understood race the way we understand it so I guess what for me is very interesting is um, when we encounter suddenly being imagined in different ways or we think about race as this fixed thing it isn't and it's probably in a few hundred years you know we won't think of race at all uh, the way we think of it today and So to David's comments of, you know, suddenly encountering this kind of racial experience and your comments of being unable to see on what basis this racial experience is being made, what I would say is we're imagining race all the time. And it would be interesting to ask ourselves, can we imagine it differently? You know, can we imagine our way out of it?
1: I think that's one of the things that your book thoughtfully touches on, which is why it is a fascinating read. And it's also one of the things that I think you touched on a little bit earlier when you're discussing how. All over the world, different communities, not just in America, are dealing with a sense of tribalization, a sense of uh, people saying things would be better, reflecting back to a past time, which again, I'm not even sure was actually better, but people's state is better, uh, and cleaving off these separations. Uh, One of the things that I've heard from you, though, in that is, again, this reimagining, how we could imagine a better path forward Uh, What thoughts or ideas do you have on how we as a people can get past that tribalization and reimagine things moving forward for a more inclusive
2: society? Well, I think that um, it's very important to begin to think about optimistic futures. One of the problems that we face right now is that there's so much um, information coming our way that's pessimistic about the future. Partly the way that, in a sense, the attention economy works and and news media and entertainment media uh, work is that um, it's recognized that people pay the most attention to threatening information. If your ancestor ignored an orange, you know, flash of color in the trees, they got eaten by a tiger. And so you pay a lot of attention to the slightest bit of threatening information. And we now get threatening information constantly on our phones and our social media feeds, et cetera, et cetera. And we're basically incredibly anxious and terrified. Um, and in this heightened state of anxiety and terror, it's difficult for us to imagine a future we actually want, you know, can believe would happen and that we would be able to get to. And when we can't do that, then we default into a kind of nostalgic politics, which is this nostalgic politics that we see really all over the world right now, you know, from Pakistan to the United States. Um, to me, the response to that is to think, what's a way to a kind of optimistic future? Can we imagine a future that's better than this one, that's more inclusive and that we can actually get to? And for me, partly that also has to do with the idea that it's not just that people are going to change their minds. The way that human history works is that one generation passes on and a new generation grows up. And over the course of time, younger generations think differently. And so partly what we have to figure out is how do we restore a kind of generational compact where the older generation agrees to leave the younger generation a better world, which is what older generations have always been a- expected to do. And the younger generation can then take forward a kind of more progressive and more inclusive view of the world. Right now, I feel like that's what's broken down. And so thinking about this, this collapse of, of trust between generations and the damage being done between generations is an important part of finding our way to a more optimistic future.
1: We're speaking with Mohsen Hamid, the author of The Last White Man, a novel here on 1019 WDET. And we can also speak with you to join in the conversation. 313-577-1019, a very, very fascinating book and read. And you discuss uh, the reimagining of how we can have uh, more inclusive communities or uh, move past this. uh, Think of a better future uh, without getting into too much in the book. I think there's a fascinating Uh, things there about changing generations and how uh, we can have a better future. But I would present to you uh, that um, characters in your book also do this reimagining. Can you talk us through how some of that reimagining of a better future happens uh, in your book as you uh, set it out?
2: So Anders, um, the character we begin with, he's a young man, small town, works in a gym, wakes up dark. He doesn't want to believe it he spends you know, a while hoping it just hasn't happened, that he's imagining this. Um, but it's clear to him after a while that he hasn't just imagined it. And then he hopes it's going to go away. It'll reverse itself. And that doesn't happen. And then he asks Una to have a look at him and tell him, look, just, you know, how much of a change is this? And she says, look, you look like a totally different kind of person now. And so he tries to hide himself a bit. He doesn't see his friends. He doesn't see people. He kind of just goes and Comes and goes from his house and wears a hoodie and, you know, just tries to keep a low profile. But eventually he has to go to work. And when he goes to work, he, he's trying to communicate to everybody, look, I'm exactly the same person. Don't Sure, I look different, but I'm the same person. He, he tries to act like himself. But what he discovers is, is he tries to act like himself. He tries to act unthreatening. He tries to act like a white person in a way, as he imagines a white person to be. He discovers that he can't that just trying to act like himself is unnatural. Trying to act like you're not threatening is threatening. And he discovers that his identity isn't who he is on the inside. It's also a, a relational thing. How people relate to him shapes what he is, what his identity is. And as the novel progresses, he eventually has to reckon with this and he has to realize that he has changed, in fact. It's not just how he looks. The way people deal with him has changed and therefore his own sympathies and his own way of looking at the world has changed. Um, and as the novel progresses in a sense, Anders comes to um, a kind of different view on these things. He begins to think of people who are dark, dark-skinned differently. He thinks of people um, who are threatening people who are dark-skinned differently. And he thinks eventually of the next generation, uh, a generation that's born entirely of dark-skinned people differently. Um, He's able to, in a way, find a way to a kind of love um, for himself and for the next generation. But it's not an easy process.
1: I love that phrase, that idea, act like yourself, like the moment that you attempt to uh, be yourself, then you truly cannot be, quote unquote, whatever yourself is supposed to be. As we're speaking with Mosin uh, Hamid here on 1019 WDET, author of The Last White Man, a novel. And we do have a question for you that I want to get to. John in Gross Point asks about your thoughts on how much does anxiety around race come from economic insecurity or tie in with it?
2: I think that economic insecurity is, is, is um, hugely reinforcing um, of the conversation around race. So... Um, in a way, you can think about um, power in society, and you can think of who has power and who doesn't have power. And while it's clear that to a certain extent, um, uh, people who, have, who don't belong to, the, uh, to sort of the white, in quotes, white community in America have less power in aggregate than people who do, um, when you start breaking it down, you find that there are other dynamics as well. So what about somebody who's, who's very poor and white? Do they have a lot of power compared to somebody who's, who's quite wealthy and white? Um, and if we're gonna be moving power around, what if that person feels, wait, is it really fair to take something from me um, and give it you know, to somebody else? And so partly I think the conversation is we, um, if we avoid an economic conversation, we create a situation of winners and losers where some of the losers are people who already feel like they're economically losers in society. And and so the notion that um, we should be thinking about things economically is very important. That that everybody uh, in America, for example, who comes from a disadvantaged economic background is deserving of a better chance of more help, of better social services, regardless of race. Um, And that in fact, doing that helps on the conversation about race as well. You, you basically are trying to counteract um, inequality. And inequality cuts on a racial uh, dimension and it cuts on a uh, gender dimension, it cuts on a socioeconomic dimension. So I think the two things are very close. And one thing which is very dangerous is to have a society that's growing more and more economically unequal yeah. at the same time as the conversation is happening about racial inequality which is what's happening in the U.S. right now, because it means that tempers are rising and people are feeling more and more compelled to take on uh, polarized and, and violent positions.
1: A very fascinating conversation that we're having right now with Mohsen Hamid here on 1019 WDET. And as we continue, we want to join you in on the conversation. 313-577-1019 as we continue our conversation about change and loss with novelist Mohsen Hamid. Tina in Detroit, you're coming up next as Detroit Today continues. in Detroit Today. I'm Nick Austin filling in for Stephen Henderson talking with Mohsin Hamid about his new book The Last White Man, a novel. It's a tight 180 pages so it's a novel that you can get through uh, in fairly good time uh, and it's a very fascinating read as well and we're also speaking with you 313-577-1019 to get you involved in the conversation just like Tina in Detroit did right now. Tina, Go ahead, you're on Detroit today.
0: Thank you so much. That's such an interesting conversation. Um, I just want a couple of comments. One is the fact that with so much re-gentrification going on in in a lot of urban areas like Detroit, you know, like what's happening over in Cleveland, um, some of the people in the community, we kind of feel left out. We kind of feel like things are happening all around us, but we're not included in it. And so to me, this just furthers the, the race divide, you know, and like you said, race is something that's man-made, but it's real. It's real to a lot of people. And I kind of think that with so many people in the world today being of color, white people just feel like they're losing power because they're no longer the dominant race anymore. It's people of color. And so I just think that we all have to get along. I just want to see the communities, the municipalities be more inclusive and include everyone. So the government has a lot to do with making everybody feel good about themselves. I mean, I go someplace in Detroit, and I feel alienated, and I've been here all of my life. And I shouldn't feel like that. And the people that's coming in, they, 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 they shouldn't make me feel like that. But, but that's what's
3: happening.
1: The I Thank you so much, for, uh, by the way, Tina, for calling from Detroit and giving a perspective from you living here in the city we're broadcasting from. And I present that to you, Moson. the idea of being an alien in your own land with changing different graphics. I'm sure people on every side kind of feel like that's what the feeling is. And where does the truth come out there? What does it truly mean for representation? But I present Tina's points to you. Go ahead, Moson.
2: So I think on Tina's point, I, I completely understand um, this idea of, of feeling like, you know, an alien in your own land, feeling like you're a stranger where you spent your whole life. Um, I think that one, one aspect of human life that we sometimes forget is that every single one of us is a, is a migrant. Yeah. You know, all of us are migrating through time. None, I've never been 51 before. I'm 51 now. And I've never lived in 2022 before. Uh, but I live in 2022 now, and all of us are continually experiencing this this journey um, through time, which is incredibly strange. Uh, and and when we look at our communities and our societies and see them transformed, um, what's happening, I think, is that is that we can become almost foreigners in a place that we've spent our entire lives, and. The question is, what can we do about this? How, what, is the, um, what is the kind of uh, inoculation that we can have against the despair that comes from this kind of a, of, of a change? Partly for me, it has to do with, with empathy um, and with recognizing each other as refugees in a way, as, as migrants. Um, partly what's happening, I think, in so much of society today is that entire groups of people go unseen. We sort of do things um, and we don't really look at uh, one another. We don't acknowledge one another. Uh, And partly this happens because uh, so much of the decisions that get made, get get made at the level in which we don't participate. So for me, it's incredibly important at the level of the family, of the block, the neighborhood, the street, the part of town. Um, to have a rich and vibrant network of communities where people actually meet and do things and decide things. And those have been very substantially dismantled and they need to be reconstituted. And I think part of the way of, of imagining into a more optimistic future is about rebuilding a network at a very small micro level of your neighborhood and your street and your town. Where people get to make decisions, participate, get heard, see each other, do things together, make things together. Without that, I don't think there's some sort of top-down solution that can be that can be imposed upon us. I think that that top-down solution often feels uh, quite alienating to people. So it has to be a combination, I suppose, of of a direction of travel politically and real work on the ground at the level that people are actually interacting. You know, a softball team. Or, a school board, um, the people who come together to talk about what their street should look like.
1: I think that's such a great point that you bring up, and it's something that you can do at your local level. And again, Tina in Detroit, thank you so much for that wonderful call and, and helping us jump off on this point. That sense of community, things that you can do at a local level, and they build up to make a significant change for those around us and perhaps even bubble up to higher and higher levels of power as we speak to Mosin uh, Hamid here, uh, the author of The Last White Man, a novel. And Mohsen, one of the a couple of the things that I've heard come up that, that you bring up. Uh, First of all, uh, we talked a little bit about uh, economic insecurity. That makes me think of income inequality and how the distribution of income in our society and it seems worldwide is just getting so out of tier that it leads to this feeling of economic insecurity. And you also mentioned a little bit earlier about how tribalism is taking over. And specifically, you were talking about uh, social media and how uh, organizations can utilize, hey, the things that get the most clicks are uh, succumbing to fear, succumbing to these ideas of what get the emotional reactions running into that. What I'm interested in and asking you about based on those two is – How any economic inequality as well as uh, social uh, tribalism, how those things intersect into maybe bubbling up this idea of race becoming uh, something that's, you know, what gets pointed pointed to when we have these other issues that maybe have an outsized impact on why we've been worried about that in the first place.
2: Yeah, I think that um, that, you know, that generating uh, racial tension and cultural tension is is a very good smokescreen. Um, to get people to not talk about uh, fundamental economic inequality, which is getting worse and worse and worse. Now, that doesn't mean that these social tensions and racial tensions don't exist and aren't significant. They do exist and they're hugely significant, But, but they exist alongside an incredibly unequal economic system. And um, I think, you know, Detroit is such an interesting example of this because Detroit, of course, was one of America's largest cities, one of America's most prosperous cities, one of the world's most prosperous cities um, for much of the 20th century. And then you saw a complete change um, in in Detroit's uh, outlook and economy and uh, and, and sort of situation. Now, something like that has played out actually across America. When I was in the 1970s in uh, a public elementary school in California, um, the public elementary school I went to was probably better than almost any school in Pakistan. The most, the best and most expensive private schools in Pakistan would have struggled to match the quality of education I was getting in 1970s as an eight-year-old in, in, in fourth grade in, or third grade in, in America. But that's no longer the case. Now, there are many schools in Pakistan that are better not only than most American public schools, but also than many American private schools. Um, this transformation, you know, from a society that invested in young people, that provided good schooling, that provided some of the best schooling in the world, um, and provided uh, a, a sort of shot at, at becoming better educated, at, at, at having a life that isn't entirely determined by the socioeconomic situation in which you start, that, that rug has been yanked out from underneath the feet of people. So for me, um, trying to think of how you rebuild community is essential and that's community at the level of, of, of the street and neighborhood, it's community at the level of, of social classes, it's lots of levels of community because um, when we default into the idea of whiteness as our fundamental identity, um, that is an attempt to create a community in a world where community has been devastated. It's much easier to disarm that tendency When we can reestablish other communities, part of which is taking care of of young people and poor people and working people um, and and reversing this current system, which effectively takes the fruits of so many people's work and, and puts it in the bank accounts of so few people.
1: I think that's right, Mosin. I think community is so important, as you so eloquently put it, as we speak again with Mosin Hamid, the author of The Last White Man, a novel. And Mosin, I got about a minute left, so I just have to ask you, as again, the idea of community is such a, a, a goes through your book so much, but a, as we wind down and just think about this book, to, can you tell listeners, what is the, what is it that you hope they most get from uh, picking up and reading this book?
2: I hope that readers get a chance to enter into an imagination, an imaginary story about race, and, and to let things become a little bit weird, a little bit destabilized, and see how that makes them feel. For me it's a chance to step out of where we are, to experience things differently, um, and hopefully emerge with the ability to imagine a different way forward.
1: Mosin, it's a fascinating read. This has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for coming on Detroit today. You got to promise me that you'll come back.
2: My pleasure. Would love to.
1: Absolutely. That's going to do it for us here on Detroit Today, here on 1019 WDET. This is Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. I'm Nick Austin. Our producers for the show, it's Sam Corey, and the technical director and engineer is Matthew Trevethan. The student producer is Taylor Davis, and the Detroit Today's music is created by Sam Bovian. And we have such an amazing uh, conversation set up and prepared for you tomorrow. In fact, we are going to be getting into coverage of uh, the congressional races for the midterms. In fact, when Stephen returns, he'll be speaking with Alyssa Slotkin, who's running in the 7th District, as well as Martel Bivings, who is running in the 13th District. So get all of your questions uh, prepared for those conversations, because when we return for you tomorrow, we are going to do a deep dive into the congr- congressional races, as I mentioned. You're listening to Detroit Today here on 1019 FM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and content. Conversation. Thank you so much for being with us today and being a part of this fascinating conversation. Remember, you can always pick up the podcast online by going to WDET.org. We're going to have this story up for you there as well. So you always have an opportunity to keep locked in, not only with this show, but all of your favorite shows like Culture Shift at Noon and our wonderful music programming on the weekend, if I can. I would highly recommend a show called Soul Saturday Heard every Saturday night from 8 p.m. to 10 p.m. It's a really good show. Until then, we will see you tomorrow on Detroit Today.